0: We're back with another episode of Journey to the Hoop, and in this episode, I talk to my good friend, Alan Stein. Alan is a performance coach, consultant, speaker, and author. He spent 15 years working with the highest performing basketball players on the planet. Alan delivers high-energy keynotes and interactive workshops to improve performance, cohesion, and accountability. He inspires and empowers everyone he works with to take immediate action and improve mindset, habits, and productivity. In other words, Alan teaches to utilize the same strategies in business that elite athletes use to perform at a high class level. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties in this podcast, so the first 10 minutes or so of this recording weren't actually recorded. But there was no way we could scrap this because Alan just dropped too many gems. So instead, we'll just kick it off right in the middle of Alan talking about his somewhat controversial opinion that today's basketball players are much better than players of past generations. Without further ado, here's my good buddy, Alan Stein. It's,
1: yeah, it's it's apples and oranges from when I was at that age. And I know a lot of old timers, and I'm not an old timer by any means, but most people tend to think that their generation was the best that their generation was the toughest and the most talented. And I hear old people all the time saying, you know, players today, they're not near as fundamentally sound. That is, that's absolute BS. Today's players, they're bigger, they're faster, they're stronger, they're more talented, they're quicker, they're, they're more fundamentally sound. They're better in every area of the game. Um, It's, and that's just natural evolution. I mean, that's just the way that it goes in 20 years from now, um, you know, we'll be saying the same thing. Twenty years from now, all the talking heads on ESPN will will be talking about the latest player, and is he better than LeBron was? You know, it's it's we're not going to see this stop, and and I think that's great. I love to see the game grow and expand and, and have a positive impact on so many more lives.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting, and and, and I, you know, I think there's varying opinions on that, but I, I also do think that the players are are, are just better today than they were in, in, I mean, I guess my generation even, or, or my, my, my father's generation, I, a lot of people, you know, that that's a sensitive subject for a lot of people, but yeah, I just, I mean, the skill level and the, from the shooting to the, the strength, the athleticism, I mean, it's, 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 it's off the charts today and I think it'll only keep getting better. I agree with you there. What, um, so in, in, in high school, um, you know, when when did you when did you first think about or 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 decide or realize? Hey, I, I want to play in college, and and maybe I can play in college. Maybe I'm good enough, and and I'm going to work towards that goal. You know, d- do you remember what grade you were? So I played multiple
1: sports when I was a freshman in high school. Um, soccer was actually one of my better sports. I played varsity soccer as a freshman in high school, uh, but just. I didn't love soccer the way that I loved basketball. Uh, so I did that my freshman year and then my sophomore year, um, I decided to play football, uh, and basketball. So freshman year, I did soccer and basketball, sophomore and junior year did football and basketball. And then senior year is when I decided, all right, I'm just going to focus on, on basketball. Uh, To be honest, I really didn't enjoy football. I had some really good friends that played, and it was by far the most popular sport in our high school. Going to the Friday night football games was the big deal. Um, So I think as kind of a somewhat uh, socially insecure high school kid, I'm thinking, all right, playing football will make me one of the cooler kids, so I'll go ahead and play even though I didn't like it near as much. Um, But, yeah, basketball – Uh, was was what I'd hoped I'd have an opportunity to play in college but you know what's interesting looking back and and given the fact now that that I get I get paid to speak to a variety of different groups on maximizing performance and being a great teammate and and you know uh, improving your ability to achieve and have significance through work ethic and controlling your attitude it's funny when I look back uh A lot of my mindsets and behaviors in high school and college are the exact opposite of what it is that I preach now. And it's uh, it's not because I'm a hypocrite. It's because I've learned. And it's, you know, I I try not to live with regret. But, boy, if if I would have been able to put into practice what I know now at 42 back when I was 16, I mean, it's not like I would have been an NBA player or anything, but I would have been a better player all the way around you know my my attitude in high school i always did just enough i never did more than i was supposed to do like i would i was at every practice and i was always on time and i would play as hard as possible at practice but i didn't do any work outside of that i never came in early i never stayed late and in my mind i was doing what i was supposed to do that's what was required and and you know now i realize that doing what's required is not enough. That if you want to be great in anything, you have to go well past what's required. You have to do extra. Um, and, you know, I, I think most people listening to this hopefully can say, well, yes, I knew what I knew back then, what I know now I'd be better. Because uh, if not, that means you haven't learned anything. So I'm not alone in that mindset. But yeah, I, I didn't put in the extra work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's what's kind of funny to me now was even though I didn't put in the extra work, I was still good enough to be the best player at my high school. I was still good enough to go to Elon. And that was always the justification in my mind. But part of me always wonders, man, if I would have put in the extra work and if I would have done the stuff that I talk about now and that I've seen players like Steph Curry or KD do, if I would have put in that type of of commitment and effort, you know, maybe I could have played at a level higher than Elon. Right. Maybe you know, you just never know. But um, you know that that part's interesting. And then once I got to Elon, so Elon was Division Two when I went there, and they actually changed to Division One while I was while I was a student there. Um, and you know, it's fascinating because I played a pretty decent amount as a freshman at Elon. And then, as you know, in college athletics, I mean, they're always trying to recruit, I mean, you're trying to recruit better players than you currently have right I mean, that's that's the goal of every college program. And, and Elon did a good job of that because the group that came in the following year, I mean, the guys they brought in were better than I was, and I wasn't willing to admit that. And you know, I didn't do the work required to earn playing time my sophomore year. So, of course, my minutes started to diminish. And instead of taking that on as a challenge and saying, you know what, I'm going to go in early, I'm going to stay late, I'm going to do everything I can to earn my time back, I ended up having a really bad attitude about it and just kind of just kind of gave up and was like, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to keep going to practice because it, I'm on scholarship. But, you know, it, it's funny that it's it really is such a tale of two stories with me because – It's like an out-of-body experience. I can't even believe, even in telling you this story now, because of how I'm wired, I can't believe that was the attitude and the mindset that I had. Uh, But like anything, I try to have a positive spin on that. And what it's allowed me to do in coaching is it gives me greater empathy. You know, when when I'm dealing with a player, you know, that's not getting the playing time they feel they deserve, I can now have some empathy and look at it from both sides and go, okay, well, you're not playing as much as you'd like, you have a choice to make. You can pout about it, whine about it, and cry about it, which is what I chose to do when I was your age, or you can actually roll up your sleeves and get to work and and earn more playing time. So now that I can see both sides of it, I think that allows me to be um, hopefully a more empathetic and influential coach um, and, you know, with the folks that I work with. But, yeah, it's crazy looking back that that I allowed myself to have such – such a poor attitude and such a negative mindset.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, I, I think I think we all have stories like that. You know, I I mean Logan and I specifically did one of our podcast episodes on um how to deal with like playing time frustration and it stemmed because we both have stories like you just talked about where we did not deal appropriately with the frustrations with not getting the playing time we wanted and uh, a lot of my stories uh dealt with um high school and, and prep school but Logan even had um a story from his pro days when he was playing so you know uh, I I totally understand you there man and, and and I think if you play at a high enough level and at a competitive enough level there's going to for most players there comes a point where man, you're not going to get that playing time you want. And, it's, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's about how do you respond to it? How do you deal with it? So what, I mean, well, h- h- go, go ahead. Well,
1: well, I was going to say one more point on that. See, what's crazy was what the mindset was then, it was, you know, woe is me. It's, you know, the coach doesn't like me or I should be playing more, but I'm not. I was, I was misdirecting and blaming everyone and everything except for myself. And now that I have some maturity, you know, I can say that man, I I can't believe that that's the way that I framed it, that looking back on it, I didn't deserve the play. I mean, the coach made the right decision with who was playing, and I didn't do anything to make his decision tougher. If I would have started, you know, practicing harder and working on my weaknesses and making my strengths stronger and coming in early and staying late and showing better leadership, if I would have done all of those things, then at least I would have made his decision harder. Uh, I mean, I never even went in and, and had the most basic conversation, which is what I tell all kids now, is to go in and sit down to your coach and say, Coach, what do I need to do to earn more playing time? What do I need to do to prove to you that I can add value to this team and you put me in the game and let them answer and let them say, you know, well, you're a liability on defense or I need you to improve your ability to pass the ball into the post, right? Whatever it is, let them tell you what you need to do and then go work on that stuff. And then if you go and you do all of that stuff to the best of your ability, hopefully it will reflect in more minutes. But even if it doesn't, at least you can rest your head on your pillow at night saying I did everything that I was capable of doing to earn the right to play more and it just didn't quite work out and you don't you're not stuck with any regret and and i'll even say i'll tell you this story which is i mean it, it almost pains me to say it because it's embarrassing and i don't know that i've even ever told this story publicly but i think it was my junior year and you know i went from being i think i started about half the games as a freshman to by my junior year i wasn't hardly playing at all i was i was i was on the one of the last guys on the bench, you know, the, the plus 20, minus 20. If we're up 20 or down 20, I got in. That was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is usually only the last 90 seconds of a game. And I was so into myself and so egocentric and just so worried about me. I mean, this is the exact opposite of a team player. And and the only reason I'm sharing this is because I, I hope it can help some listeners uh, by no means condoning my behavior. I remember going um, af- after playing you know, the last 90 seconds of a blowout game, I went into my coach's office the next morning and I just said, Coach, look, man, if, if you don't want to put me in the game when the game actually matters, then just don't put me in at all. I'm not going in anymore if you're going to just put me in for 90 seconds. Mm. And I n- never played again. I mean, yeah. never played again, never saw the court. And it's so funny because I remember walking in there just pouting to myself and thinking like the world owes me something and how dare you embarrass me by putting me in in the last 90 seconds. And it was just all about me. And I, I I wasn't being a good teammate. I wasn't, you know, certainly wasn't being a good player uh, underneath that coach. I mean, it's, it's just remarkable because if, if a kid did that today or if one of my sons did that today, it's just like, man, you, you just don't get it. This ain't about you. It's about the team and you know, I mean, most people that have followed my work know I'm I'm a Duke fan. I love coach K and you know, when, when those guys at the end of the Duke bench, I mean, some of those guys only get in three or four times the entire season and they might only get in for 10 seconds and they run as hard as they can for the one time up and down the floor. And I have so much respect and admiration for that one, because I didn't do that. And I had the opposite attitude, but that's what being a team player is. That's what acknowledging your role is. I mean, Uh, I I didn't even take the mindset of, all right, I'm not going to play a lot, but I can still contribute to this team by being the best practice player possible. And even though I'm not the starting point guard anymore, I'm going to push our starting point guard as hard as possible every day in practice so that he can be the best player, and that will help our team. And and that's that's the way my mind's wired today, but it it definitely wasn't wired that way from – you know, 16 to 21. But I mean, and you should have seen the look on my coach's face when I was like, dude, if you're not going to put me in the game when it matters, don't put me in at all. Yeah. And funny enough, he, he showed me. He was like, all right, no problem. Because <laughs> I never took my shooting shirt off again.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that no. thank you for sharing that. And and, and that's really interesting. And, and, and when do you think you know, the light bulb went off for you, so to speak, on that, like, hey, I, I did not handle that situation correctly. I, I should have done it, you know, the the total opposite way or whatever, you know, do, do, do you remember like a specific moment or kind of a period in your life where you look back and you're like, man, that was that was not the right way to do it?
1: You know, it wasn't necessarily a specific moment. It was gradual. I I, I do believe that most people in their teens and even early twenties skew towards being, you know, me focused. It's all about me. The oh, world owes me. It's it's this world of entitlement. So part of it I just think came with age and the older I got and the more I realized, hey pal, this world doesn't revolve around you. You're just a little piece of it. Start looking about how you can add value to other people and make other people's lives better and stop worrying about yourself. So part of it was that. But the real turning point was I think it was 2003 was the first year um, that I started working at Montrose Christian uh, for coach Stu Vetter, um, which was an elite level program. I mean, that's where Kevin Durant graduated, uh, Justin Anderson, Gravis Vasquez, Terrence Ross. And we had a lot of NBA players come out of there. And that was a really elite, elite level high school program. And he was a huge Dean Smith disciple. So coach Vetter ran the Montrose program almost identical to how Dean Smith ran UNC's basketball program, all the way down to the four corners. I mean, everything. Every year he would go down and watch Dean Smith's team's practice for, you know, I mean, his practice plans, everything was identical. So uh, being a part of that program as the performance coach kind of gave me a little bit of insight of what it would have been like to play at Carolina for Dean Smith and how everything was centered around team and thank the passer by pointing to them and and nothing was about you, it was always about us and we don't care who scores we just care that we score and and these are elite level kids I mean every kid at Montrose for the most part went on to play mid major or major Division one basketball I mean they were really talented, so I think being a part of that program really started to open my eyes of what it meant to to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Because, you know, here I am um, as a performance coach, and I'm looking at the 12th man at Montrose, who is basically what I was at Elon, and yet the 12th man at Montrose ends up getting a full Division One scholarship to play basketball. <laughs> so even though he wasn't the man, he was playing against such good talent every day that he still was a, an incredible basketball player. And then, of course, my six years at DeMatha just cemented that fact of of what it means to be a great teammate and that it ain't about you. And that if you only get 30 seconds on the court, you play that 30 seconds to the best of your ability. And maybe that 30 seconds will turn to 60 seconds next time. And that 60 seconds might turn into three minutes. And then if you do well in three minutes, who knows, maybe you'll be put in, in the first half. And I got to see, you know, a a masterful job by coach Mike Jones and put all of these things into practice. So I think it was this, this natural evolution of me just slowly maturing with age and being a part of two really, really well-run high school basketball programs that did things the right way that it, it just totally just snapped me back to reality and started to look back on those days. And, but, but what I've, what I'm proud of the fact is I I, I certainly don't say these things proudly. I mean, I say them almost with a, a tone of embarrassment, but I'm thankful that I, I went through that because now it does. It gives me a much wider perspective because I know what it's like to be a starter and be the leading scorer on a team. I also know what it's like to be the very last guy that never takes off the shooting shirt and somewhat of everything in between. So I I think I have a, a decent ability to relate to just about any player now and what they're going through and be able to explain to them that, you know, Hey, I know you're not playing as much as you'd like. Here's what I did when I was your age. And boy, that was the wrong approach. Here's what I'd I'd hope to see you do, and maybe you'll fare better. So it's been kind of a blessing in disguise. Uh, so I try not to live in the regret. I try and be thankful for for all of the experiences I've had, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because now they shape you know my my principles and my philosophies today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We um, yeah we talk a lot. You know, especially myself, I talk a lot more about my mistakes that I made as a player or person back especially back when I was younger to our players about hey (laughs) don't be like me in this respect like like this is how you should handle it Um, you know this is a much better way and and just uh, relating yeah you know some of your bad decisions or failures or whatever you want to see it but but now you can at least look back and, and, and 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 try to try to help players not make those same choices or mistakes that that you made. So so that's always a positive thing. So how you you were at Montrose for what a couple of years and then I was at
1: Montrose for 7
0: years. I oh, was there for 7 from, uh, years. Wow. Yeah,
1: I was there 2003 to 2010 and then uh, left and was at DeMatha from 2010 to 2016. And oh, then wow. in the is kind of when I made this decision to try and take everything that I've learned through basketball and apply those to some other settings and some other groups. But yeah, that was, that was 13 years of, you know, being a part of two really well-run programs and it was really neat. You know, uh, for me, uh, Coach Vetter, you know, at the time when I was at Montrose, was in his early to mid fifties. So he was old enough that he could have been my father. So there, you know, you're talking about a guy that had coached high school basketball as long as I had been breathing, uh, and that was an interesting dynamic working for and learning from a coach that was that much older. And then I go over to Damatha and Mike Jones. I think is only two years older than I am. So then I go and work for and learn from a guy that's basically a peer. I mean, we could have been brothers. And it was just neat to see how many similarities there were between the two programs of what it takes to be really successful, yet how both of them had very different leadership styles, different different philosophies and principles, and yet both were incredibly successful. I mean, both at the time, not worrying about outcomes, but I mean, both at perennial top 20 programs in the country, mm-hmm. and yet they were led and run in some ways, very similar and in some ways very different and to me, that was one of the reasons that i I wanted to make a leap over to Damatha was to broaden myself and to learn from a different coach and to learn a different program and and start to see all right what things make these programs the same, and what things are they different and that also started to help me be able to form my own convictions, my own coaching and life philosophy so you know, I'm very thankful that in those 13 years, you know, I got to work with some amazing players, but got to learn from two just really, really, really good coaches.
0: Yeah, so so you got to work with and coach a lot of really good players at those schools, and then obviously worked with two first-class coaches, but then you also... Um, were able – you started working or, or coaching on, on kind of – I don't know what the, the proper term for it is, but kind of like that Nike camp circuit when, when they were really popular um, a few years back with all the NBA guys, all, all the top NBA guys having their camps and things like that. Um, you know, how, how did that happen, and, and what was that experience like? Well, uh, so Coach Vetter, I mean, literally – started coming with national prominence back in the
1: seventies. I mean, he had uh, some really, really, his first great player was a guy named Mike pepper that ended up playing at Carolina for Dean Smith. So that was how he got introduced to Dean Smith, um, which, you know, and then he had Dennis Scott and he had Randolph Childress. And, and I know to younger players listening to this right now, those names don't mean anything, but you know, back in my day, those guys were big, big time players. Um, and, you know, uh, so, so coach Vetter and being able to bring those folks in, he was one of the first high school coaches to get a shoe deal. Um, Cause back, I mean, I know it's, it's commonplace today, but back in the eighties, the it wasn't so commonplace. So he got a deal with Nike uh, before even a lot of college programs had deals with mm. Nike. Uh, and then, Mike Jones at Damatha, you know, Damatha is a, a Nike flagship program as well. So, having those relationships is what introduced me to the people at Nike. And, you know, after I'd been at Montrose for a few years, uh, 2007 was the first year that Nike decided to roll out this concept of summer skills academies. And they wanted to make them position specific and they wanted them to align with the best Nike players that they had at the time, which was Kobe Bryant, uh, Steve Nash. Obviously, LeBron James, um, Vince Carter, Amari Stoudemire, uh, Paul Pierce, and that's some really, really good good names behind what they were doing. And they would bring in the top high school and college players by position to run a camp underneath that specific player. And uh, because of my relationship at Montrose, and thankfully, and quite honestly, because the performance space, wasn't as competitive you know in 2007 as it is now in 2018 um you know i was able to kind of work my way in and say look uh, you really should add this performance and strength and conditioning dynamic to these camps you know i'd love to come work i'll work for free i don't need anything i just want to be a part of them um and being able to 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 work those events was life-changing for me as well because uh, not only was able to work with some elite level players but then i got to be a fly on the wall around guys like kobe and 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 paul pierce and steve nash and lebron and, and could see you know when they're giving private talks to the campers and sharing some of their secrets to success and watching some of their private workouts and the things they do behind the scenes uh, and then the staff you know were, we're incredible coaches it's coach kevin eastman and kate flock and um some former nba coaches so they're bringing all of these really great people in and and i'm by far the lowest guy on the totem pole But at a place like that, you want to be thankful for that because that means every single person that was at one of those events was somebody that could teach me and pour into me and mentor me. So um, now that I was at an age where I finally started to have some humility and realized, man, I'm so thankful that I can sit here and listen to Kevin Eastman talk to Kate's lock for two hours about basketball and just let that absorb and how much I learned Uh, I mean, I just uh, I I learned so much during those skills academies, not just about basketball and X's and O's, but but how to be a better leader, how to be an effective communicator, how to influence young people, you know, how uh, just how to be better in every area of your life. So those combine that with my time at Montrose and DeMatha, they were very, very uh, formative years for me and and really helped me grow um, just not as a coach, but as a man in general
0: yeah 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 and and you know are are you able to tell uh one or two short stories from from that period from you know between montrose and the end of Damatha and it might be concerning one or two one uh, uh, of, of those schools or it could be a an experience you had at one of the nike camps um but could you tell you know one or two stories? Maybe one dealing with a, about a player, one about a coach, maybe that uh, that really impacted you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll say you know I've told the you know the story about watching Kobe work out. There's been a few stories that I've I've told a lot, and uh, if anyone were to Google my name or go onto YouTube, you can probably find those stories very easily. So what I, I'd like to do there's two stories that I'd like to tell your audience that I haven't told very many times publicly, yeah. um, hopefully to be of, of better value. Um,
0: and, one, and, and, uh, Alan, let me interrupt you real quick too. Everyone sure. needs, who's listening to this, needs to go listen to Alan's Kobe Bryant story. Um, because if if you want to find out, kind of hear about a story about hard work really is, that's a great one. So anyway, go look that up. And uh, yeah, Alan, I want to hear this.
1: Well, <laughs> well two, one was, all right, I, I got a chance to work. It was the Steve Nash skills academy with steve nash point guard academy up in trenton new jersey and um i still stand by the fact uh, of all the players that i don't know on a personal level i mean i'll always be rooting for the guys that i had a chance to work with in high school um but outside of that group uh, steve nash is by far my favorite player of all time i just there was something about the the energy level that he brought and that he was such a great teammate that i was always attracted to and of course I mean, you know, he was a magician with the ball. I mean, he, he was doing some Steph Curry stuff before Steph Curry was doing Steph Curry stuff uh, <laughs> with some of his offhanded finishes and his ability to shoot. Um, but I remember he was, he was talking to the players, uh, these elite level point guards at his camp, and he said a couple of things that I thought were very profound. Uh, the first one he said was, in his offseason, he ended every single workout By figuring out, he would pick some unconventional finish. So maybe it's a wrong foot layup or, you know, who knows. But he would figure kind of unconventional finish, and he wouldn't leave the gym until he did it 100 times. So if it was a, you know, a Euro step or a wrong foot layup, he would do it 100 times, and that was his ticket out of the gym. And he said, when you guys watch me this season, inevitably you're going to see me make a play that looks like I pulled it out of thin air, but it's not. Anything you see me do in a game, I guarantee you, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times behind closed doors. That all of this stuff is practiced over and over for thousands of repetitions. And then at the right time and the right moment of the right game, you're going to see it come to fruition. But (laughs) basically his point was none of this is luck. Yeah, that might have looked like a lucky shot, but when you've practiced it as many times as I have, it's not luck. Um, And another thing that he said that was really profound was if you look at the analytics in the NBA, um, when, when the ball goes into the paint, either on a pass or on a dribble, uh, the, the percentage of scoring goes up. I mean, exponentially. I mean, you get a much Mm -hmm. higher percentage shot. doesn't mean you have to shoot the ball from the paint, but clearly if you drive the ball all the way to the block and then you kick it out for a wide open corner three, that's a high percentage shot. So he said as a point guard, His goal is to make sure that they get the highest percentage shot possible every time down the floor. Well, if statistically, you get a higher percentage shot when the ball touches the paint. He said my number one job was to make sure that the ball touched the paint every possession, either on my drive or on a pass. And then he said once the ball was in the paint, I personally wanted to make sure that I had as many options as possible. So I worked as hard as I could to be ambidextrous so that I could dribble with both hands, finish with both hands and pass with both hands so that anytime I had the ball, I could be a threat in a variety of different ways. So if I drive the ball into the lane, you know, I can stop for a short jump shot. I can shoot a floater. I can dump it down to the big man. I can make an offhand pass to the corner for a three. I can dribble it back out and reset the offense. He said, I didn't want to have any limitations. So the number one goal was get the ball in the paint, number two goal is to have as many options as possible. And and there was just something about the way that that he broke that down step by step and understood his role was to get the highest percentage shot possible. But in order to do that, the ball had to touch the paint. I just I love the way he had a very cerebral approach to that. And he makes it sound so common sense. Yet think how many point guards don't do that.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I man, he's one of my all-time favorites, and and I just love I, I you know the other thing about him, and um you know this goes into kind of what you talked about about his his just different way of thinking about things, but even just non-basketball stuff, I, I I just love watching videos on him or listening to interviews with him and just listening to him him talk. He he just seems like a very kind of free thinker.
1: Oh, for sure. I remember one time, and I remember this specifically, it was a playoff game. He was with the Suns. And you know how, uh, at least back then, I mean, not back then, I mean, it's five, six, seven, eight, ten years ago, <laughs> but they would, right, right after halftime, they would often pull the star player off and do a little quick interview before they went into halftime. And I remember there was a time where, I mean, he played the entire first half. He is running in line to end line as fast as possible. Buzzer goes off, and they grab him to ask him a question and I don't even think his heart rate was elevated. He wasn't even breathing heavy. I'm sitting here on the couch, and I was probably breathing heavier than he was, and he just played an entire first half of playoff basketball, and it just (laughs) reminded me what sick condition he was in and what a great athlete he was. You know, most younger kids never appreciated how good of an athlete he was because he wasn't a high-flying dunker, and he wasn't making SportsCenter top ten for dunks. But when you looked at his balance, And his hand-eye coordination and and his his body awareness and, I mean, all of those factors, he was an exceptional athlete. He just wasn't a super high leaper. But, I mean, for you to play an entire first half of NBA basketball and then three seconds later you're in the middle of an interview and you're not even breathing heavy, I mean, his cardiovascular fitness was just on another level. And I, I just remember seeing that and just being blown away.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um do, do, do you by chance I got one
1: more story for you if you yeah, want. Yeah,
0: yes, one. please. I do.
1: All right, so my first year at the um the the team had won before I got there. They had won back-to-back uh city championships. Um uh which at at the DMAPA level, that's the highest level you can win. I know they have some of these mythical national championships, but to win the WCAC conference and then beat the best public school in DC would crown you the city champ. And that's, that was, they don't do that anymore. They gave up the city championship several years ago, but at the time that was a big, big deal. And my first year there, uh, they won the third one. So they'd won two before I got there. and Then we had a three P and then the following year, um, was going to go for four in a row, which had never been done before. And there was one player, James Robinson, uh, who ended up playing at Pitt and and plays professionally now overseas, um, played varsity as a freshman that first year. So he was going to have an opportunity to win four straight city championships, which had never been done in the history of D.C. basketball. And when you look at all of the players that have come out of the Washington, D.C. area, for him to be the first and only to do that would have been remarkable. Um, so to, the, to fast forward the story, we get down to the WCAC championship. And to put this in perspective, you know, our good friend Paul Biancardi and other folks that are in the know from an analyst standpoint often rank the WCAC as the number one conference in all of high school basketball, that you've got Damasa and Gonzaga and St. John's and Paul VI, that it's not unusual for three or four teams in that conference to be ranked in the top 25 in all of the United States. Mm -hmm. So winning that conference is a really big deal. And we're in the championship game, and we're playing a really good Paul VI team, and there's a couple seconds left, and we're down one point. And it's our ball – and James Robinson, I mean, he's a four-year starter. He's he's the go-to guy. We had bigger names on that team, guys that now are playing professionally, like Jeremy Grant. But but James was the heart and soul of that team. And is without question the, 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 the toughest player that I've ever seen at the high school level, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever. Toughest kid I've ever seen. And we've got the ball. We've got three seconds left. Coach Jones calls timeout. Ball's at half court um we run a play you know we know we're going to give the ball to James we want the ball in his hand he's our fearless leader and you know we'd run that play a few times earlier in the season with great success everybody in the gym knew who was going to get that ball um James got it he ripped it across his body he took two power dribbles in and got just inside of the free throw line and as the buzzer is going off uh he puts up a shot that from where I was sitting looked like it was money looked like he's going to hit that shot and he's he's the 4 peak guy, and it came up an inch short, hit the front rim, and, and, and missed. And, of course, their crowd goes insane. I mean, the champions were just dethroned. You know, you just cut the head off the snake. It's complete pandemonium in there. And, and James was just as distraught as anyone that I've ever seen. And also, to put this in perspective for your listeners, I know that in most high school programs, you know, the point guard's, Five nine, five ten, hundred and sixty 160 pounds soaking wet. You know, James is six three, six four, two hundred and twenty 220 pounds of rock solid muscle. Like this, Big this boy. was a man. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, he was reduced to tears. He was, I've never seen outside of being at a funeral. I've never seen another human being as inconsolable as he was. And the amazing part was it had nothing to do with himself. The whole time he's there crying, he's feeling like he let his teammates down. He's feeling like he let Coach Jones down and the staff. He's feeling like he let the mascot down. I mean, every, it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with he felt he had a chance to do something special for that school and that program and his teammates and his coaches, and he missed. And, you know, I remember to this day – sitting there with him and his parents who were amazing people. I mean, he just sat in that gym until the entire place cleared out. I mean, there was nobody there, but building service people just crying. And, and I don't say that in any way to diminish him. I told you, this is the toughest kid that I've ever seen, but losing that game meant so much to him because of how important to math. The basketball was that it was just completely distraught. And, and he knew in the back of his mind, that we wouldn't even have been in that position if it wasn't for him. And he knows that no game comes down to one possession, that the the turnovers and the missed putbacks that we had in the first quarter are just as responsible for that one-point loss as the final shot. That final shot's what gets all the notoriety, but it never comes down to one shot, and it never comes down to one player. But what makes this story truly remarkable was the very next morning, James went in before school, had Coach Jones come in early and open up the gym. And he went in and he made – he went in and mimicked that shot and made it 100 times before school. He went in and made the Mm. shot that he just missed because he said, and these were his words, he's like, I can't – you know, I can't replay that shot, but I'm not going to let this define me for the rest of my life. Like I missed, it sucks. But I'm going to – this is how I'm going to get closure. I'm going to make it 100 times. And I just remember being blown away that uh you know that an eighteen year old had that type of maturity. you know here, here I am telling stories of me when I'm twenty, and I'm telling about <laughs> not playing right me and this too. kid I mean think about it, it would have been very understandable if he would have just pulled the covers over his head, said, "Mom and Dad, I'm not going to school. I don't want to see the world. I don't care like most people would give him a free pass and go, "Yeah, I get it, man. You just missed the biggest shot of your life. I get it and instead. He goes in and makes that shot before school a 100 times and then walks with his head held high for the rest of the day. And I know that that shot will always bother him. I know there'll be a part of him that will always wish he could get a do-over. I'm sure there's a part of him that, that may even still bring a tear to his eye when he thinks about it. But talk about a mature young man with some grit to be able to put that behind him and not let that define him. And he went on to have a great career at Pitt. Uh, under jamie dixon and then is playing professionally and and james is one of those kids that i don't care what business i was in i would hire him in a millisecond for any position he wanted because of those type of qualities and 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 that's one of probably the most rewarding memories that i I have just of of being in high school basketball
0: yeah that's awesome and and You know to be honest with you he's probably you know a better player and a better person from missing that shot you know it's just kind of funny how a lot of times our 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 failures or mistakes actually end up making us stronger in the end just uh it just might take us a little while to uh to 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 figure that out um but uh man those are awesome stories and um you know, appreciate you sharing that, that, that basketball journey with you, uh, with us, but, um, now just, you know, I I don't want to take up uh, a ton of your time here, but, um, you know, you've, you've kind of, you, you've somewhat did a 180 and, and you've gotten out of the, uh, the basketball specific space and, and, and now you're doing something, um, Pretty different, but uh, but but like I said, taking a lot of those basketball lessons and, and things you learn from, uh, I guess we'll call it your previous career and, and, and applying them to the new one. So can can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. You know, it's it really kind of it's a good transition from the James Robinson story because, and I said that with with full transparency that what James exhibited that night and the next morning are the type of qualities that any business or organization should want to have on their team. And having a guy like James on your team in the right position can only add value. And that's really what I do now is, is talk to organizations and businesses and, and share with them all of these lessons that I've learned through basketball, through my ups and my downs, through playing through coaching, through being a fly on the wall at the Nike skills academies, to sitting on the end of a high school bench and taking all of that stuff and showing them how they directly apply to business and how businesses can create better cultures, can can hold each other collectively accountable at a higher level, can set better standards, can raise the performance, can make work a more enjoyable experience for everybody involved. And and that's really what I'm aimed at now. So it's, it's kind of neat because even though I don't work directly with players and coaches uh, as much as I used to, I'm taking all of that basketball stuff and sharing it in the corporate world now, which has really been a lot of fun. Um, it's been a neat experience, you know, taking all of this stuff and just aiming it at a new audience. So I'm still kind of reliving the basketball days and telling basketball stories, but more importantly, I'm pouring pulling the moral lessons out of them and how they can apply. And, and that that you can learn a lot about team cohesion and you can learn a lot, you know, uh, about raising the level of the person next to you. Um, by taking these, these things that I've learned through sport, So I'm having a blast doing it, and I'm also learning a lot because the neat part is, you know, it goes both ways. Um, basketball coaches should be studying what the most successful businesses do because they'll be able to learn things from Amazon, Nike, Google, Apple, or even a local business in your area that does things very well. You'll be able to pull things from that and apply it to your team to make your team better. So, you know, the tenets of success for teams and even for personal uh, performance, they don't really vary industry to industry. I mean, regardless of of what it is that you're trying to do, the fundamentals don't change, which probably circles all the way back to the beginning of this, which is one of the things that I love about basketball. I mean, you've got your basic skill sets of shooting, passing, rebounding, defending, and handling the ball. And when you can do those things at a higher level, and you can do them more efficiently, and more importantly, you can do them within the confines of the players around you and make other people better, then collectively you have a chance to be successful. And that's ultimately what a business is trying to do. Everybody needs to know their role and embrace their role and star in their role. And collectively, you can work together to create a culture that will make you a, a profitable and, and sustainable business.
0: Yeah, I love that man. And, and and that's what we're trying to do here as well as, you know, we understand that most kids are not going to become college players. They're not going to become pro players, but being able to take what we learn in basketball and and apply that to in in, in your case, business, but um, but also, you know, just life in general. Just so many lessons uh, that we can take from basketball, from sports, and 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 just apply them uh, to different areas off the court is is, is pretty awesome, man. So, um, and and I will say this: I've heard uh, one uh, of your corporate speaking gigs, and it was awesome, man. It was it was really really good, and uh, I encourage anyone out there listening, if 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 you're a business owner and um, you're, you're interested in that, in the culture building, leadership, that sort of stuff, let us know. We will connect you with Alan. And uh, if anyone has a chance to listen to, uh, to Alan speak, you should definitely do that. Well, thanks, man. It's,
1: uh, I've really enjoyed all of our interaction and, and just can't commend you and Logan and the rest of your team enough for what you guys are doing. You're, you're pioneers and you're shining bright lights in youth basketball. Uh, which oftentimes, um, you know, need some cleaning up and need some help. But you guys do things the right way for the right reasons. And and as we just talked about, it's not about whether or not you have a bunch of players go pro. Uh, You guys are able to provide a platform where kids can use the game of basketball to not only get an education, but to develop the life skills necessary just to be good human beings in the future so you guys are making a huge difference and and I'm just thankful to to know you guys and be involved with everything that you're doing so keep up your great work
0: well thank you man we we, we feel uh, we feel the same way so likewise and uh, yeah really appreciate you coming on and um, and maybe we can have you back sometime but uh but yeah in the meantime good luck with your uh, your new career and uh, and keep up all the great work man.
1: Thanks, B. I appreciate you.